Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Go into doctor's offices in America, and you generally see a preponderance of older patients with only the rare scattering of adolescents and young adults. And this is because most serious medical illnesses don't occur until later in life. Most doctors spend the majority of their time with people over age 40. Psychiatry is a huge exception to this rule. Serious psychiatric illness almost always appears during adolescence or early adulthood. The first break of psychosis or mania, the first crippling depressive episode, these classically occur right when kids are finishing up high school and heading off to college or work or the military. The cruel reality of severe psychiatric illness is that it typically derails young people just when they are starting to find their way in life, when they're leaving the nest and setting goals and developing into independent adults. One of the more common things I see in my practice is exactly this, a young adult leaving home for the first time, sometimes with early warning signs of impending doom, but other times with no signs at all. And then within a few months, or maybe a year or two, the psychiatric breakdown begins, and the parents are left in a horrific position. For another quality of severe psychiatric illness is that more often than not, as people get more and more ill, they lose their insight and judgment. They either don't realize that there's something desperately wrong, or they become increasingly convinced that there's nothing that can be done for them. It's unimaginable that someone would have, say, a 104-degree fever, or vomit blood, or have a debilitating headache, or see their cracked femur poking out of their skin, and then claim that they don't need medical help. Yet the psychiatric equivalent of this happens every day in my office. The most ill people are the least likely to seek treatment, and they're the most likely to adamantly resist treatment. In this episode, we hear all of this from a mother's perspective. Tessa sent off her youngest son to college with some concerns for sure. His high school years were marked by increasing anxiety, body image obsessions, fear, avoidance. But he wanted to go, and Tessa and her husband thought that college could be a place where he could grow and thrive and find his healthier self. Unfortunately, this is not what happened. Before he moved uh, to college. There was definitely lots of sleepless nights, um, you know, verbalizing uh, some anxiety um, about that. But um, but went ahead and did go and moved into the call, moved into his dorm, but had very specific requests of what he wanted that dorm to be like, and that was an environment that he could get. Uh, adequate sleep and not be disturbed. And he was very concerned about uh, food choices that he would have. Mm-hmm. It was concerning and we even contemplated getting him a single room. Um, but at the time we were, we just thought he needed the whole experience. Everybody needs to go to college, experience the dorm, learn how to deal. And so we felt pretty strongly about that. Um, so that's why You know, we were just like, you know, you'll make it work. During the first weeks of school, Tessa worried how Sam was doing. And although she was in regular phone contact with him, she really didn't have a sense of how he was functioning. When he came home for Thanksgiving, however, it was apparent that his body image and health obsessions were spiraling out of control. 
he brought an entire box full of supplements home. I mean, a big box, not just a little box. Mm-hmm. And he was um, had actually had a pretty severe bout of acne that he had never had to deal with before. Um, and then he was very tearful mm-hmm. um, that weekend. But he did go back and he did finish out the... Uh, semester and then came home for Christmas break. Mm-hmm. It just felt like he was searching for something mm. to help him feel better. Mm. And it was very, very specific what he had to take, how he had to eat. Um, there was just a lot of those kind of concerns. Like there was this, you know, becoming incredibly obsessive. spent a lot of time just talking about life and the changes that had happened and how he could persevere and, mm-hmm. you know, make it through. But when you tried to challenge him on some of the ideas of the supplements or, you know, some of the other things he was bringing into his life as far as, is mostly the supplements that um, he would get really defensive mm. and, and was very becoming very anti um uh, Western medicine. Mm. He was definitely going to class and he was doing well academically. So, you know, it was kind of balancing that concern versus he seems to be succeeding. Um, he's not coming home every weekend and he was making friends. Um, he's dating a little bit. And so we felt okay, you know, from that standpoint, but there were some issues starting to come up with the roommate that he would call and, and be, um, frustrated with as far as eating habits. He didn't like the way that his roommate ate. He didn't like the way he was, um, his sleep patterns. He would stay up late and play video games. And so that way they were not gelling. Mm -hmm. I think at that time I was just concerned he was getting depressed and not able to kind of start to move forward was still, was really struggling with, uh, the way he, he felt like he looked and he had put on quite a bit of muscle weight. He probably put on about 20 pounds, but it was all muscle. It was not alcohol (laughs) induced (laughs) weight gain. So he was very, very, very preoccupied with his physical appearance. That was becoming like the all encompassing thing for him is how he looked, what he put in his body and how people perceived him. Mm -hmm. You know, he had to be perfect. When he came home for Christmas break, he was incredibly labile. Um, we had had some friends over and family over over the break, and usually he was he's pretty reserved, but he liked to be around family and friends. And um, he left, and I didn't know if he was going to come back. 
and he did. And I think he hit it pretty well around the people that we knew. But there was a lot of tearful uh, nights, tearful talks. With the two of you. With the two of us, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, and then it was New Year's. New Year's came around, and um, he had decided to try to put on a good face and go out and see f- old friends. And I do have to say his friends that surrounded him were, have been and are remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, but that didn't go very well. I mean, he went out and didn't feel good about himself. And it just, um, the remaining time at home, he just was uh, becoming more and more depressed. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the obsessions just continue, you know, they weren't any different. They were just constant and just very, had to have a very set day, you know, and just had to be just right or mm-hmm. he wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of, you know, pressure from what he perceived he needed to do to be successful, you know, what he perceived our expectations were. And I'm sure there were some expectations that we had as well. <laughs> And so I think it was just a lot of internal turmoil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Was there a question of whether he would go back mm-hmm. second semester? Yeah, there was. We talked about that quite a bit. And I, I was pretty concerned as it got closer because he just, I was really worried, becoming more worried that he was definitely not suicidal at the time, but it was definitely the amount of depression was very concerning. Mm-hmm. But what a what an incredibly impossible position for you to be in because here your beloved son has gone away to college. There's signs that things are getting worse. But when do you say you have to stay home or you mm-hmm. need to not go back to college because you figure, well, maybe he'll go back and be around mm-hmm. his friends and things get better, this is a phase. Or, I mean, how do you decide... <laughs> It's just a terrible position to be in. A lot of sleepless nights, and we did talk about that quite a bit, just the pros and cons of what to do. And towards the end of the first semester, I had really encouraged him to go talk to somebody, and he refused. And then towards the end of Christmas, I continually just mentioned it and tried to encourage him to find somebody to talk to. And he, he really did want to go back to school and make it work. But there was already some difficulty with the roommate. And so we knew that that was going to be the very first thing that happened was somehow coming to some agreement with the roommate that this is how we're going to be able to survive. Mm -hmm. And that didn't go very well. Mm. And he immediately tried to find someplace else to live, which wasn't very easy to do. He paid another kid to stay in his single room so he could actually sleep. He moved out to another friend's room, and then he was like, I can't do this. And so he moved home an hour away and continued to go to school, made, pretty much did everything at home, but would go to take tests down uh, as he needed to. Mm-hmm. So he would drive back so, and forth. So he finished out his second semester he did. just living at home. He did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Sam asked for help, but this opened up more questions and doubts. 
because Tessa knew that Sam would be unable to accurately describe what was happening with the new therapist. Sam thought that he had been poisoned as a young child, maybe by immunizations or unhealthy food or even antibiotics. And he was increasingly agitated and furious with his parents for allowing him to be poisoned in this way. In fact, he was plunging into a delusional body dysmorphia and OCD that was making him increasingly hopeless. Because of confidentiality, Tessa's ability to engage with Sam's therapist, whether at the college counseling center or in the community, was greatly compromised. And for sure, Sam did not want his parents saying too much to his therapist. And then he did ask me to help him find someone to see, which was, I felt like, I felt like that was a huge mm. step, obviously. Because you had asked months before, do you want to mm. talk to someone? He said no, but then finally he says... It wasn't oh. just no, it was basically, <laughs> it, was, it was adamant. Like, <laughs> fuck no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and he did um, actually go to the um, the counseling center at school. Mm-hmm. That made me feel good and really worried all at the same time because mm-hmm. he actually made that appointment went twice and I just felt like okay things are really bad mm. worried because yeah thinking for an 18 year old young man mm-hmm. to take himself to the counseling center mm-hmm. it must be yeah really bad right yeah mm-hmm. after a very short stint at the college counseling center Sam switched to a therapist in the community who initially seemed very confident about what to do with Sam's increasing rigidity and avoidance. But as Tessa had feared, it was increasingly unclear what in fact Sam was telling this therapist, and whether the therapist had any idea at all how scary things were getting, both for Sam and for the family. This person, um, in hindsight, really fed into his OCD. His therapist. His therapist, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There was very structured assignments. Um, and if they weren't completed the way the therapist wanted, he would be um, talked to, reprimanded to some degree. Wow. Yeah. But I think that played into the way that Sam was living his life yeah. as wanting to be perfect mm. and wanting to to do these things just right. But if they didn't feel right, he would kind of pull back and then he would get in trouble. You just don't know how much time to give it before you start trying to find somebody else, you know, or am I just, am I expecting miracles and I just need to stick this out? on a family trip and things just progressively got worse because the lack of control while we were on vacation was very challenging for him and there were good days and bad days but there was a lot of a lot of very difficult um, times with that so when we returned from the trip we kind of met with the counselor and kind of described what we were seeing and what we were concerned about. 
And he said, well, then we just need to completely change up his whole entire life. So I will tell him what to eat, when he can eat it, and it cannot be the same thing every day. So we all bought into it and said, okay, even though my gut was like, this is not a good idea. And I allowed it to continue and it just, um, yeah, it did not go well. Yeah. It's almost like that therapist said, excuse me, we're going to take his, his rigidity, his possessionality, and we're just going to crowbar him out of it. Yeah. 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 We're not going to allow him to do any of it. Right. Yeah. And he tried really, um, hard to do that and then felt like a failure because he couldn't it just it was devastating to watch was becoming more and more depressed and actually started talking about um, was telling me that he was hearing voices to kill himself Mm. and that was very obviously traumatizing to everybody you know of course that's just the most frightening word you can hear out of your child's mouth and um, he goes I don't want to do it mom but I just keep hearing these voices and then you're like okay is he here you know is he you know, really hearing voices or is he just, you know, telling you that he's hearing these, you know, having these sense, you know, feelings of I need to just get over it. I can't live like this. So it was so bad one day and he's like, I just don't know what to do. And I said, we're just going to go to the emergency room because it was a Saturday and the count, you know, the counselor was in a different town. And so if I just want to get a second opinion about maybe who you should see and how we can help you. And he didn't want to go at first. And I felt just like I didn't know what else to do. And so he agreed to go. We went to the emergency room and he was evaluated and they did not feel like he needed to be admitted and gave us some uh, ideas of how to get a new counselor because they were concerned that the counselor that we had was not helping our situation at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a shame in the in the American mental health system. Mm-hmm. In the ER, there's this bar to clear to get you know acute inpatient treatment, which is mm-hmm. to be imminently dangerous to yourself or someone else or gravely disabled. But there's a lot of people that are maybes on them. Mm-hmm. Me, I mean, and yeah. so many people, I think, like, Sam show up and they say, mm, you're not really inpatient material. Right. Mm, just go back to your, find some outpatient care. Yes. Yeah. So they gave me some places to call, but it felt like it was just starting all over again and just throwing darts at a dartboard, trying to figure out who, who we could get him to see. And, you know, realizing that it's very difficult to find good people um, that, that make a fit. Not yeah. um, and um, there are a lot of people that are are not taking new patients or are backed up for many months, and we just didn't have time. Yeah, I'm wondering what that was like 
for you both as a mother and a physician that you see this in two ways. One, you want to desperately get help for mm-hmm. your son. Secondly, you're seeing a part of medicine that maybe you didn't have much mm. current knowledge or, or mm-hmm. sort of insight into how it goes and right. seeing that trying to get mental health care, yeah. even as a physician, even in a you know, well-populated place like the Front Range of Colorado, not easy. Not easy at all. And it was actually through some luck and begging and um, some really generous, uh, a really generous therapist who um, agreed to take us as a family, but uh, primarily help Sam. Um, he And there were a lot of good things that they connected on and a lot of barriers were torn down still very, very, very strong-willed as far as what he would eat and was very convinced he could he could cure everything just by um, his what he ate, what he put in his body, and, and the amount of exercise he could do. Mm-hmm. But that person was willing to see him twice a week, which is not something that he no- normally did. I, yeah, I mean, I really believe that he helped to save his life. Even though Sam eventually found an excellent therapist who he could finally start to trust and connect with, things were getting even more frightening at home. He was smashing holes in walls, threatening suicide, and eventually Tessa felt so unsafe in her own home that she had to move out for a time to live with relatives. He was getting progressively worse. Mm-hmm. And, and what did that look like specifically? Not, I mean, the not sleeping at all, basically almost up every night, um, walking around, walking out of the house, you know, just um, getting more and more sleep deprived, more, you know, just a lot more anger, frustration, you know, scary, starting to talk more about suicide mm-hmm. and become, it, it was becoming more of, I'm scared, I'm hearing these voices too. I'm just going to kill myself. things were getting worse we ended up having to go to the emergency room again um, because of the threats of uh, killing himself were becoming he had he was stating what he was going to do so when we took him in that time he um, he did get admitted to an inpatient facility Mm. and at that point I um, I had to take a leave of absence from work I just could not do it anymore. And that was a really tough time, mm-hmm. tough admission and tough. Um, didn't really feel like I could tell anybody what was going on, why I had to stop working. Felt like I was letting everybody down at work, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a very say, busy time. And yeah, Say more about that, Tessa, that you, you didn't feel like you could tell anybody what's going on because you're amidst this just awful family crisis and you felt like you had to keep that quiet so I think 
there's this uh, thing that always continues to go through my mind, and it was said in with great love, but it was like, you guys are such great parents, and you have such amazing kids. Mm-hmm. And then when this was happening, it's like, then does this mean I'm not an amazing parent because uh, my kid is having a hell of a time, mm-hmm. and I am failing miserably mm-hmm. at that. So I think there was a lot of, you know, a lot of guilt and a lot of, embar- you know, I not, not I wasn't embarrassed that this was happening to him, but I just felt like I see all these pictures of all my, you know, friends and people I don't know that are, have their perfect families, and I wasn't having my perfect family. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had really failed as a mom. Mm-hmm. When really looking back, it looks like you should have gotten some kind of superhero medal. I mean, you're you're doing everything you can to try to save his life and trying to keep your family together. And But you're not trying to find him help was just like this impossible sounding proposition. It was just everything was just overwhelming. Trying to stay strong and feeling like a complete failure. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm just imagining, I'm guessing there's people that you work with that could have been and would have wanted to have been there for you. Yeah. Um, and they know that you're on leave and maybe yeah. some of them are wondering why. Yeah. And there you are just feeling not only so scared, but thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm not a good mom. I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Or if I yeah. were a better mom, maybe this wouldn't be happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, things get said in jest or, you know, like, well, that person's crazy or, you know, just, I don't know, just things that you say, like, uh, you know, you see people say, and it's like, it can just happen to anybody, you know, and I just am, I'm so much more cautious about what I say, because you just never know what people are going through. Over time, it ha- I have been I've been able to open up a little bit, and when I have, it's been a very positive experience. Mm-hmm. So, in hindsight, I wish I could have. Maybe it would have helped. I didn't even want to tell my own fa- my own sisters what mm-hmm. was going on, and I begged. You know, I asked, told my mom, "Do not tell them," and she was so worried about me that she did mm-hmm. out of love. But I was so angry mm. because I, and I love my, I'm very close to my sisters and I couldn't even tell them. Mm. And was that primarily because it felt like such an indictment of you as a mother? I think so. Like being the oldest sister and kind of always seeming like they always said, you know, you have everything so you figured out and, and I don't, you know. But <laughs> if, someone, if someone does, could you please e- email me right away? <laughs> But, yeah. you know, I think it was just always, I always felt like I was kind of the one taking care of everybody. Mm. Yeah, I just, it was hard. It was just hard. I don't, I don't honestly know because they're not judgmental people mm. and there was no, and once I did tell them, they were, were awesome. Yeah. You know? I wonder too, Tessa, you know, you, you take care of people for a living. Yeah. So you're not only a mother taking care of your family, but you... For years now, you take care of people for a yeah. living, and now you have this crisis medical situation mm-hmm. with your beloved son that you can't figure out 
how to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, um, there's just so many levels. It was so painful and not being able to help him was just horrendous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a parent, I think we always want to do the best that we can for our kids and feel like you, they're, you're, we are their safety net. And I just felt like I had, if I would have been able to see things sooner, if I would have had gotten help sooner, if I would, I mean, I could, I could do that till <laughs> the cows yeah. come home, but it's just so not healthy. Yeah. And I'm good at that. So I think once I was able to open up and, you know, people really surrounded us with mm-hmm. a lot of love and, you know, any support they thought they could do. Mm-hmm. Did you feel you got any negative judgment or or shaming or any anything that you'd feared from anyone once you opened up? No. And I was very selective who I opened up to. And I, I, the one day I finally opened up to somebody I don't know very well, um, but I've always really admired her and... Um, and so I kind of, I just came, it just came out mm. and it was like, and this was, you know, things were starting to get a little bit better at this point in time. And she just like gave me the biggest hug and I just, I just sobbed, you know, oh. because I think people are so good, Yeah, you know, for the most part that it did make me sad that I didn't feel like I could, mm. that, that this is something we have to keep quiet. Yeah. And when you do open up and then people start to tell you kind of what's going on with them, there's more of this out there than you ever dream. Yeah. Yeah, because where you figure anyone that you would open up to who's a parent, for example, so that's a lot of people. Yeah. Just like thinking your kid, something's desperately wrong and you're not sure how to help him. Yeah. I mean, what's scarier than that as a parent? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one day when we did open up to some friends, they were like, okay, they were just thinking, you know, what can we do to help you? And they were just brainstorming like crazy with us. And uh, they had a friend who had some experience with um, psilocybin. And he was a very successful business person. And he agreed to meet with me and took time out of his own family life. Somebody I don't even know. And we sat at a restaurant and he kind of went over, gave me a book, told me his experience. And we were just reaching out, trying to figure out what we could help to give our son that he might be amenable to, to get us get us through this process. And there had been a lot of, I had done some reading. There's a lot of, obviously a lot of research going on with psilocybin and how it really helps with OCD so I was really excited about it because it was natural and I thought my son would do it, right? <laughs> so here I am, am promoting, you know, drugs to my child. But So I met with this really nice 30-something-year-old man and he came to our home and spent four hours talking to our son and just telling, just talking, just talking, like... I mean, I couldn't believe he spent four hours talking to a young kid that he didn't even know. And we found out at a later date that his nephew had committed suicide in college. Mm. And he was so passionate about trying to help 
dead. Um, he did that for yeah. us. Somebody we don't even know. Yeah. a journey for sure um i think it brought kind of a lot of things to the forefront that i hadn't thought about in a long time and you know some of my insecurities and so i think in a way it's really helped me to deal with that head on and actually made me a better physician in learning some compassion for myself yeah i didn't know if i could go back to work because i there was just so much trauma to this situation and, um, um, you know, dealing with my own depression to d- with the whole situation. And, uh, when I did finally decide to try to go back, cause it had been a, it's been a really big part of my life. I love what I do. I love taking care of people. And so that was like a big loss of who I am. Mm-hmm. It, so if I didn't go back to work, yeah, who am I, right? And um, so going back was really challenging, but I have to say the people that I, there was two people who I opened up to at work about what was going on, remarkable physicians, and I have, I just am so thankful. Mm-hmm. They, they gave they... me the patience to come back slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were supportive, you know, if this doesn't feel right, they helped ease the certain cases that I would be involved in. You know, they were very, very, very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And there was never any, like, you know, you're weak, you know, you couldn't hold, you know, you can't, couldn't keep working, and you let us down. There was none of that. Mm -hmm. And so they let me start slowly and kind of work my way back up to, you know, what I felt comfortable doing. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sounding like from from your story that, if you could do it again, I'm wondering if actually what you would change in your story isn't any of the things that you did for Sam. It's what you would have done for yourself. Yeah, I think that's really um, a good point. And I thought to myself that everybody needs a good therapist on retainer <laughs> So <laughs> when this stuff happens, because I think it happens to most everybody. It happens to everybody. Yeah. It happens to everybody. So. Something. If something <laughs> terrible hasn't happened, you haven't lived long enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I know that to be true. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, I feel, I think I'm in a better place now, you know, personally, in dealing with all this and, you know, dealing with some old baggage myself that I kind of had suppressed. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think I'll look back and say I've really met a lot of remarkable people through this. And we feel very, very thankful um, that I was able to meet these people. I'm thinking now of you telling this story and how you held so much of that inside. And then when you finally did try to trust some people, they surprised you. Yeah. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I did have to let some people go that I didn't feel like I could trust with my story. Um, and maybe that was, that may have been wrong on my part, but I did have to say goodbye to some of that. Mm. Cause I think it was bringing me down instead of, that was a hard decision. Cause I'm kind of a, once I meet somebody, mm. I'm kind of an all in kind of person. Mm. I'm always there. Mm-hmm. Um, so letting they were people have been in my life for a long time, but I'm like, if I don't feel comfortable telling them, there's something not right mm-hmm. with this relationship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I do have a book we're going to recommend for mm-hmm. parents whose kids are getting ready to go to college that I found to be after the fact. I didn't read it before. I read it after, and it really helped me um, not feel so much guilt. Mm. And yeah, what's that book called? The Stressful Years of Their Lives, and we'll put that on the Yeah, I'll put that on the show that notes. Yeah, yeah, so I think my sister had recommended it to me, and it really did help a lot. Uh, it's written by a psychologist whose son went to college and had very similar events to our experience. And then there's lots of stories about other young adults having that same experience. So it really kind of helped in a way realize how common it is, but mm-hmm. made me really sad how common it is. Mm-hmm. And what are we doing to our kids that this is the way that there's so much stress in this world for them. Mm-hmm. It makes me really sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's so common Tessa, that when I was thinking about episodes for this season, I thought I have to have a parent on to talk about having a kid go away to college and having a really scary breakdown. Cause it happens all the time. Like it is one of the most common things we see in young adults. And, and you, you're so brave today to come on and tell this story and, um, and I'm so hoping that people heard you when you said that when you opened up to others, yeah. that they wanted to be there for you. Yes. They wanted to, to love you and support you without mm-hmm. judgment and just give you what you need. Yeah. Yeah. I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that. And I, I've, I obviously didn't have it for a long time. Um, but I do think that's just when you reach out to people that you really have a connection with or that you feel like I, you just, you know, which, which, who that would be, you know, I really think trust your gut. Mm -hmm. I think I didn't trust my gut enough in several of the decisions that we made. And again, that the outcome might've been the same, Mm -hmm. but I think I wish I would have trusted my gut a lot sooner. Except that your gut was all wound up with fear. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. (laughs) I think it's, you're right. I think it's ideally we trust our gut, but when we're scared enough, we're we're paralyzed. Yeah. What I take from Tessa's story is that we need each other. That the more we feel consumed by guilt or shame, the more we must find someone to open up to. This is why therapy works. This is why 12-step groups work. This is why close friendships work. 
When we pull our shameful secrets out into the light, we find that they are so profoundly human, that underneath the facade of our friends and colleagues' smiles and social media accounts are wells and vats and oceans of pain and guilt and shame. Tessa found the courage to open up to others and found that she was not alone. And this was the start of her healing.